Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my good friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. Over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been sharing with you uh, a number of reflections that uh, Archbishop Sheen gave uh, during the Second World War, and he's been talking about the philosophies at war, uh, the pillars of peace, uh, kind of um, giving us a bit of a refresher course, because uh, many of you have been asking you know, who is written on war and peace? And yet, we, when we study history and we the, study the great writers, uh, many of us know that Fulton Sheen has literally steered millions uh, to God. And I like to say, uh, trusted him. And, uh, you know, I travel across uh, North America giving reflections on Archbishop Sheen's life and his legacy. And it's amazing the number of stories that uh, people come and share with me. Uh, Stories of listening to Fulton Sheen as a child uh, with the family gathering around the television set and in some cases the radio. Uh, Others telling me a story or two of meeting Fulton Sheen personally. And so, uh, again, just this uh, person that has touched uh, so many lives and you know, I like to say that each one of us has, you know, a Bishop Sheen story. I, I have my own, and uh, many of you listening have also your own uh, fond recollection of this, I like to say, this saint uh, that is with us uh, still uh, through his audio recordings, his television shows that still are rebroadcast on uh, a number of networks. I know that people uh, enjoy the YouTube videos that you can find. And uh, I remember years ago setting up a little website called uh, bishopsheentoday.com and I just found every video I could find on the internet and I put them all into one collection. And so, uh, again, people just will watch Bishop Sheen uh, in the comfort of their own home or on their, uh, you know, device. Uh, I like to say everybody's got, <laughs> you know, a cell phone where they watch videos now. It's it's amazing the technology that's out there. But still, these opportunities to listen and watch Uh, Bishop Sheen. And so, uh, again, we're going to share some of his timely wisdom uh, on the topic of of war and peace. And um, again, I want to thank everyone who has purchased a copy of the book that I put out this year with the help of Sophia Institute Press. It's simply called War and Peace, an anthology, uh, because, you know, it was an easy title to come up with because um, actually... um, Archbishop Fulton Sheen's name, uh, when you translate it uh, from the Gaelic language, um, of course, uh, Fulton Sheen having an Irish background and uh, many people from Ireland knowing how to speak Gaelic, um, again, when you translate uh, Gaelic from the Fulton 
Um, sorry. Yeah. When you translate Fulton's name in Gaelic, it means war, and uh, Sheen in Gaelic means peace. And so his name actually means war and peace. So, um, you know, he was baptized um, Peter John Sheen, uh, but when he was enrolled in school, uh, they say, call him Fulton. And so, uh, again, he would uh, live up to his namesake, that's for sure. And he wrote so beautifully on the topics of war and peace. Uh, Now, what I'm going to share with you today uh, are two reflections that he gave. uh, And it's entitled, um, I like to say, The Barnacles on the Ship of Democracy. And, And we always ask ourselves, you know, what's troubling society? Uh, what is getting in the way of our spiritual progress? And a lot of times we fall victim to uh, some of these lies and some of these misconceptions. And uh, in the 1940s, when the war was on, uh, Fulton Sheen was warning uh, the good people who would listen to him about these different barnacles on the ship of democracy. And so uh, he will explain, you know, how barnacles, um, you know, get on the hull of the ship and they have to be uh, brought into dry dock. And of course, those barnacles removed. And uh, again, in a beautiful analogy, Fulton Sheen saying, we also have to remove these barnacles that have attached ourselves, uh, not ourselves, but attached to ourselves um, and have them removed. And um, again, he talks about, um, and you'll listen to him talk about um, you know, the barnacle of relativism, um, the barnacle or the superstition of progress. You know, we always uh, like to say, you know, how is a progress really working for you these days? You know, we have all the technology in the world, but are we any happier? <laughs> are we um, more at peace? Uh, I have to sometimes answer no. Um, so he's going to have this philosophical discussion with us uh, for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, uh, just talking about uh, these philosophies. And so uh, happy to share that with you. And of course, it uh, was recorded in the year 1943. And so uh, I want you to enjoy now, um, you know, Archbishop Sheen, when he was known as Monsignor Sheen, uh, again, give these reflections on the barnacles on the ships of democracy. So please enjoy these talks. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen of the Catholic University of America will now deliver the third in his series of 17 addresses on the crisis in Christendom. His discourse today is entitled, Some Barnacles on the Ship of Democracy. I present Monsignor Sheen. Friends, last Sunday we spoke of the first of the three philosophies of life involved in this war the totalitarian. Today and next Sunday, we speak of the second, the secularist and materialist culture of the Western world. By the secularist ideology, we mean the attempt to preserve human and democratic values on a non-moral and non-religious foundation. The condemnation of secularism of the Western world is not a condemnation of the Western world. There is the same distinction to be made between the two as between a ship and its barnacles. 
the ship in its passage through the seas picks up barnacles which impede its free progress through the waters. Every now and then, that ship must be brought into dry dock to have the barnacles scraped away. The ship is good. The barnacles are bad. Now, Western civilization, or what we call democracy, may be likened to a ship. America, in particular, is a good ship. It carries the precious cargo a belief in inalienable rights and liberties. This ship of America is good. It carries the burden of the four freedoms of which our president spoke. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. This ship of America is good. And it is freighted down with the cargo of the right of sanctuary. For America has been a sanctuary in the past and is a sanctuary now to the oppressed peoples of the world as no other land on the face of God's earth has been a sanctuary. This ship of America is good. And it is freighted down with the precious cargo of all those fine and noble things which make you and me proud to call ourselves Americans. But in the course of sailing, this ship has acquired some barnacles. And these barnacles are superstitions which I shall speak constitute what we call the passive or soft barbarism from within. They are a danger to Western civilization, not quite as open as totalitarianism, but just as insidious. Today we shall describe three of these barnacles. The superstition of progress, of scientism, and materialism. After we have described them, we hope that we will be able to scrape them off. First, the barnacle or the superstition of progress. It runs some such way as this. Man is naturally good and indefinitely perfectible. But the mere fact that he lives, and thanks to great cosmic floods of evolution, he will be swept onward and onward until he becomes a kind of a god and this earth becomes a paradise. Goodness increases with time while evil and error decline. Progress is automatic. Such is the superstition of progress. Now, why is it wrong? It is wrong because... It confuses mechanical advancement with moral betterment. Progress in things is not necessarily progress in persons. Planes may go faster, but man does not necessarily become happier. Mastery over disease 
is not necessarily mastery over sin. Conquest of nature does not mean conquest of selfishness. Time does not always operate in favor of betterment. Because a man is sick, time does not make him better. Unless the evil is corrected, time may operate in favor of disease, decay, and death. True progress is morally and not mechanically conditioned. It depends not on vitamins, more playgrounds and better milk and ductless glands, but on the will, the will to goodness. There is, therefore, only one real, true progress in the world, and that consists in the diminution of the traces of original sin. History does not prove that we are making progress. Notice the intervals between wars in modern times. The interval between the Napoleonic Wars and the Franco-Prussian War was 55 years. The interval between the Franco-Prussian War and the First World War was 43. The interval between the First World War and this one 21, 55, 43, 21. And each war more destructive than the other, and at a time when man had all the material conditions essential for happiness. Is this real progress? The sad and tragic fact is that modern man under sufficient stress, and even among comforts, will do deeds of evil as terrible as any that have ever been recorded in human history. Barbarism is not behind us. Barbarism is beneath us. And at any moment, it can emerge unless our wills aided by God's grace, repress it. Our own mechanical ability to move quickly can go hand in hand with the power to do more evil. Let no one deny it. Our scientific progress has outstripped our moral progress. The myth of necessary progress has exploded but because the evil in the world does not evolve right, does not mean, as they say, that there is no right. What it does mean is that we must put it right. And in order to do this, we may have to learn the lesson of the cross and the agony of Gethsemane. Maybe, maybe, we had all better get back again to God. Then there is the second barnacle or superstition, the superstition of scientism. I do not say science, I say scientism. And by scientism I mean that particular abuse of science 
which affirms that the scientific method is the only way of knowing anything. It is this particular superstition which makes people say, science tells us. But they never say, scriptures tell us. Or the church tells us. Or the commandments tell us. Science is supposed to be the very last word on any subject. Hence there's no place for values, tradition, metaphysics, revelation, faith, authority, or theology. The only true knowledge is that which comes from counting. Such is the superstition of scientism which has gripped America. Now science is, of course, a very valid way of knowing. But only of knowing those things which are subject to experimentation and the methods of the laboratory. The great values of life, such as justice and truth and charity, are beyond experimentation. No one has yet ever been able to put a mother's love into a test tube. But who will deny that it exists? We cannot put a man into a cauldron and boil him and stew him until he gives forth the unmistakable green fumes of envy. The great values of life are beyond the laboratory. And scientism of this kind is ruining higher education in the United States. And is doing it by assuming that anyone who has counted something that has never been counted before is a learned man. It makes no difference what you count in higher education. But in the name of heaven, count! A certain Western university awarded a Doctor of Philosophy degree to a student who wrote on the thesis the microbic content of cotton undershirts. A Midwestern university has counted the ways of washing dishes. Eastern universities have counted the infinitives in Augustine, the datives and the ablatives in Ovid, the four ways of cooking ham, and another, to quote their own words, the psychological reactions of the post-rotational eye movement of squabs. <laughs> Go into any Catholic school in the United States tomorrow and take out any child in the first or second grade and say to that child, why are you here? Where are you going? What is the purpose of life? And the child will be able to answer your questions. But ask this PhD student who counted the microbes and cotton undershirts why he's here, where he's going, what is his destiny. He would not be able to tell you. He would not have a five-cent gadget in his house five minutes without knowing its goal or its purpose. And yet he will live 10, 20, 60 years without knowing why he is here or where he is going. It is not true that modern youth is revolutionary because he lacks sufficient economic advantages. Never before has modern youth had so many. The modern youth is revolutionary because he has no purpose in life.
And unless, as a nation, we restore purposes and values in education, we will end only by educating for chaos. Oh, we are paying a terrible penalty for divorcing our science from God. Nature which studies science belongs to God. When man turns against God, nature or science turns against man. As Francis Thompson rather beautifully put it, I tempted all his servitors, but to find my own betrayal in their constancy. In faith to him, in fickleness to me, their traitorous trueness and their loyal deceit. That is the true story. Nature will be false to anyone who is untrue to its maker. For years, science has been discovering the wonders of nature, but instead of glorifying God, has forgotten God. And scientists thought themselves the authors of the book of nature instead of only its proofreaders. And tearing nature away from God, nature now turns against them. And the result, that science which was supposed to be our servant is now our master. Why is it that millions today shrink in terror from a machine in the air? Why does man use his technique to destroy man? Why do children crouch in dread and mothers dig holes in the bowels of the earth as bombs fall from the skies and all hell is let loose? If it is not because science has gotten beyond our control. Maybe. Maybe we had all better get back again to God. And the third barnacle or superstition is materialism. This superstition affirms that man has no soul, there is no future life, man is only an animal. As our modern psychologists tell us, he is a psychoanalytical bag filled with physiological libido or he is a stimulus response mechanism, the end of whose life is the acquisition of money, the enjoyment of pleasure. There are no standards outside of the material. Now, it simply is not true that peace follows material prosperity. There is more frustration among the rich than among the poor. Sin and evil do not disappear with the advent of prosperity. Society can become inhuman while preserving all the advantages of a material prosperity. And if there are no standards outside of the material, how shall we judge the new acquisitive society which is arising? Based on the acquisitiveness of power, as against the old acquisitiveness of money. As fortunes dwindle, as taxes eat up inheritances, and as bureaucracies begin to administer vast sums of money formerly administered by capitalists and bankers, envious, greedy, and lustful men will seek to become dispensers of that social booty. And who shall say 
that these new financiers of power are wrong. Given no other standard than that of materialism, wherein power is disjoined from conscience, and we lose the right to protest in the name of justice. Our world is sick of materialism. It is pathetic to hear people ask, what can I as an individual do in this crisis? These people who have been told that they are only animals, many of them feel like cogs and machines. They want to get away from it all. Some of them would like to climb back into catacombs. Like Jews in exile, they hang their harps on the trees and ask how they can sing a song in a foreign land without a soul. There will be a change. The millions of boys on the battle fronts of the world who are fighting for their lives and for great moral issues will recover their souls. Midst wounds and death and fire and shell, they will get close to the meaning of life and to that something within them which really makes them human. And then they will look back and they will be angry at those who educated them. They will come to hate not only the enemy in battle, but they will hate still more the intelligentsia at home who told them that they were only animals. They will begin to realize that these so-called educators robbed them of their greatest possession, faith. And for a while, they will wander around the battlefields like Mary Magdalene in the garden saying, they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they laid him. But when they do stumble on him, as Magdalene did when she saw the red livid marks of nails, they will enter once again into the possession of the soul. And when they come marching home, there will be a judgment on those intelligentsia who told them that they had no soul. They will begin to live like new men. There will be a rebirth of freedom under God. For maybe, not only are they right, maybe, we had all better be right and get back again to God. Why do I speak about these barnacles on the ship of democracy? Because they are endangering the American way of life. Because they are outmoded ways of thinking. Because we are called upon in this world war to be the moral leaders of the world. Never before was a greater task thrust into any nation's hands than into our own. We have a great vocation, and we must be worthy of it. And we do not want the ship of America to be held up in its mission by barnacles and false superstitions. And may I therefore ask you, Jews... Protestants and Catholics to spend an hour a day in prayer that America may be worthy of its calling. Catholics should include daily mass and communion in this hour. And to anyone who wishes a prayer book for wartime entitled A Shield of Faith, we will send it with our compliments. For how else except by prayer 
realized the pledge of our president when he said, the United Nations seek to work for the restoration of the international order in which Christ guides the hearts of individuals and nations. That is a tremendous responsibility. America, awake! You have a high summons. Walk worthy of your vocation. Purge yourself. Repent. Your greatness is in your return to God. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope uh, you are (laughs) not... um, despairing. I think uh, sometimes Fulton Sheen, uh, my my children say he drops a lot of truth bombs, Dad. Truth bombs. And um, again, there is so much truth in Fulton Sheen's uh, audio recordings, uh, even though they're back from 1943. Uh, It's like he's talking to us today uh, when he was talking about the superstition of progress. Uh, Again, I always think of how, as I said earlier, we have all this technology, but is it making us happier and holier? Uh, Not necessarily. Of course, he talked a lot about materialism and how uh, that's failing us. And um, again, it's this idea of when we keep saying, let's do it without God, we can try it another way. We always fail. And so um, just gentle reminders. And I'm so grateful to God for uh, Fulton Sheen and the wisdom he continues to share with us. And uh, grateful to you, our listeners at home who have supported us uh, for many years now. And I want to thank you personally for your uh, financial and your prayerful support over the years. And so uh, please continue to uh, give where you can. And, uh, you know, speaking of giving, I'd love to uh, give away as much Fulton Sheen as I can for free. (laughs) And I love the word free, and I think we all do. And so uh, my little website uh, called bishopsheentoday.com, visit the site, and there you can listen to hours of Fulton Sheen. Uh, You can watch videos for hours and hours. And uh, again, all of these are free downloads. Uh, Just enjoy them at your convenience. And uh, so this is what we've done. Uh, Naturally, there is a a place that you can purchase books, and uh, everybody needs a good library. And uh, you can't go wrong with Fulton Sheen, that's for sure. Uh, Everyone needs a few Fulton Sheen books in their own personal library. And uh, again, I've been blessed to be able to be the editor and compiler of a number of Sheen books over the years. And so, uh, again, I just uh, cannot tell people enough about Sheen and what he's done in not just my life, but the lives of hundreds of thousands of souls. And so, my friends, we will now continue with his second uh, part of his talk on the barnacles on the ship of democracy. And so I will uh, give the microphone over to Archbishop Sheen once again as he continues to guide us here uh, with this holy wisdom. Please enjoy. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen of the Catholic University of America will now deliver the fourth in his series of 17 addresses on the crises in Christendom. His discourse today is entitled 
More Barnacles on the Ship of Democracy. I present Monsignor Sheen. Friends, next Sunday we will begin treating the third philosophy of life involved in this war, the Christian. Today we conclude the second, the materialist culture of the Western world. The great ship of America, we said last Sunday, has developed a few barnacles which endanger our democracy and the stability of our national life. We mention now three more of these barnacles. First, license. Secondly, the Trojan horse. And thirdly, relativism. First, the barnacle or the superstition of license. We hear it asserted in some such way as this. Freedom means the right to do whatever you please and is to be understood as the absence of law, restraint, and discipline. A man is said to be free when his desires are satisfied. He is said not to be free when they are unsatisfied. The goal of freedom is self-expression. Such is the superstition of license or perverted freedom. Now this superstition is grounded on a very false definition of freedom. Freedom does not mean the right to do whatever you please. If it did, it would be a physical power and not a moral power. Certainly we can do whatever we please, but ought we? Freedom means the right to do whatever we ought and therefore is inseparable from law. Nor is it true, as our moderns say, that freedom consists in the shaking off of convention, tradition, and authority. What is called self-expression is in reality often nothing else than self-destruction. About the only curb the modern sensate man allows himself are those curbs which contribute to his health he diets, but he never fasts. He feels justified in throwing off all restraints for no other reason than because they are old. When we reach a point where we judge our freedom by the height of the pile of discarded inhibitions, such as the commandments of God, then anyone who would die for that disemboweled ghost of freedom is a fool. Furthermore, the superstition of license assumes that men will always do the right thing if they are educated. Hence the contempt for discipline. Now here we touch on the basic weakness of modern education. It assumes that sin is ignorance and is not due to the abuse of freedom. Evil is attributed to want of enlightenment. When confronted with the problem of evil, educators immediately rush to a conference to discuss means of diffusing greater knowledge when what is really needed is a little more discipline. The intellect makes mistakes, 
but the will sins. And education must return to the forgotten truth that character is in the will, not in the reason. A man may know all we have to teach him and still be a bad man. The ignorant are not necessarily devils, nor are the intelligentsia necessarily saints. The fact is that when education becomes the servant of a perverse will, it can increase man's capacity for wickedness. Unless then education restores discipline, restraint, and trains the conscience of the young, our license will end in anarchy. Why should it take a war to bring out the heroic in us? Why does no one think of the necessity of discipline and restraint until we set out on the business of killing? And if the bravest die in battle, when shall come courage in peace? There is only one solution. We must begin in America to think less of the things we want to be free from and begin to think more of the things we want to be free for. And that is why I appeal to the Jews and the Protestants and the Catholics in this radio audience to make a holy hour of meditation and prayer every day in order that they may come to an understanding of why God made them. And we will send with our compliments a copy of a prayer book entitled The Shield of Faith to Whomsoever Writes for It. And we want Catholics to make this holy hour by including Mass and Communion every morning. Is it asking too much to make a daily holy hour? I just received word from a sailor whose ship was sunk in the Solomon Islands. Everything he had went down with the ship. Everything except a water-soaked, tattered, and well-thumbed little book entitled The Holy Hour, which we gave away last year on the Catholic Hour. For 22 days and nights, with their awful agony of hunger and thirst, this boy and his companions, floating about the watery waste of the Pacific on a rubber raft, made many holy hours from that little red book. And God heard their prayer and brought them to safety. And he sent me this news. I wonder which of my listeners would dare tell any one of these brave boys that they found a daily holy hour a little too hard. And that brings us now to our second barnacle or superstition, the barnacle of the Trojan horse. There is one great menace to our country and to the world which we may not ignore, and that is Marxian socialism or communism. It is rather soft-pedaled in these days because of our alliance with Russia, but for no good reason. Because Russia is on our side, Russia never feels impelled to go into ecstasies about the glories of democracy, and neither do I see any reason why 
Because we are on the side of Russia, we should go into ecstasies about Marxian socialism. What is make or making Russia great in this conflict is not its atheistic communism. It is its love of the fatherland, its fondness for its earth, its natural asceticism and self-sacrifice, its deep and righteous hatred of the invader. These great qualities of the Russian soul make us hope that Russia will once more re-enter the comity of nations of the Western world, the roots of which are Christian, and that Russia one day will accept the four freedoms, one of which is freedom of religion. We are speaking here of Marxian socialism. And now with particular reference to our own country. What we have to fear in this country is the new Trojan horse. The old Trojan horse, you remember, looked like democracy on the outside. But on the inside, it was the suppression of private property, religion, and personal rights. The new Trojan horse on the outside looks like a united war effort. But on the inside, it is the same old anti-Americanism. In other words, under the guise of our military kinship with Russia, Marxian socialism is undermining our American government and way of life. And so skillfully is it done that it is made to appear that anyone who says a word against communism is sabotaging our war effort. This is nonsense. The two things are quite distinct. And let no one doubt it. Stalin himself said that he was fighting against Nazism, but not against Germany. That gives us the right to say that we are against communism, but not against Russia. Now let us get the record straight. We want Russia to drive the Nazis out of their land. We want their people to live in peace with themselves and with the world. But we do not want communism in America, or Germany, or Poland, any more than we want Nazism or fascism. And if anyone doubts the sincerity of our love for Russia, let me say that every Catholic priest in the world daily says prayers to our divine Lord, the Blessed Mother and the Apostles for the intention of Russia. And that is more than the communists do. In other words, we American Catholics are for the Russian bear. But we are not for the Trojan horse. We want the Russian bear to eat the Nazi swastika. But we do not want the Trojan horse to eat the American eagle. And that brings us to our third barnacle or superstition. 
This one is very common. You've heard it in some such way as this. There's no distinction between truth and error, right and wrong. Everything depends upon your point of view. All values are relative. When expedient, moral conventions can be accepted. When a hindrance, they can be rejected. There are no moral objective standards, and hence no absolute distinction between good and evil. Everyone is his own lawgiver. Everyone is his own judge. Such is the superstition of relativism. Now, this idea that there's no absolute distinction between right and wrong, truth and error, stems in this country from the philosophy of pragmatism. This philosophy denies that God is an absolute. It judges truth not by its consistency or by its correspondence with reality, but by its utility. As one of the very best known of all American philosophers has written, and I am quoting him verbatim, the true is only the expedient in our way of thinking. The right is only the expedient in our way of behaving. Expedient in almost any fashion. Such is his idea. In other words, whatever succeeds is right. And this philosophy is taught in every secular college and university in the entire United States without exception. Now, what are its consequences? Well, for the last two or three decades, thousands of Japs have been studying in the United States in our great universities. And they heard these pragmatic ideas. And they used to write these ideas down in their textbooks. And when a professor said, there's no such thing as right and wrong, the true is the expedient in your way of thinking, and the right and the good, the expedient in your way of behaving, the Japs wrote it faithfully. They closed their copybooks, and they took them back to Japan. And when they got back to Japan, they opened their notebooks, and they read again about the right being the expedient. And they studied their lesson well. And their little weasened eyes became more weasened as they read. And finally, when they were sure they had learned their lesson, they closed their notebooks and they flew across waters. And on December the 7th, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Were they right? Were they? Did not our fascist intelligence here tell them they were right? Did not they say that anything that is expedient is right? Well, it was expedient, was it not? Thus did our superstition come home to roost on a bombed and exploded American soil. Oh, how blind we are. 
Can we not see that in abandoning the moral basis of life, we abandon the right to call anyone wrong? What moral standards are the Japs violating if the criterion of truth and righteousness is expediency? Why do we say that the Japs have violated the conscience of the world if the conscience of the world has no other standard than the useful? And incidentally, where was this moral conscience of the world before the war began? How shall the righteousness of our cause be distinguished from the righteousness of our enemy's cause if there is no objective standard outside of both? If there is no objective distinction between right and wrong, how in the name of heaven can Hitler be wrong? And how can we be right? Maybe. Maybe as a nation, we had better get back again to God. Our greatest enemy in the United States is the intelligentsia who teach these ideas. Now, what do I mean by the intelligentsia? By the intelligentsia, I mean those who have been educated beyond their intelligence and who destroy morals and wreck morale. Thank heavens our boys in the battlefronts of the world do not share the views of these educators and journalists and writers who have been sniping away for years at the moral law, calling it reactionary, behind the times, labeling purity and truthfulness as bourgeois virtues, as Karl Marx does. Our boys in the battlefronts do not believe these things. They believe in an absolute distinction between right and wrong. When Colin Kelly, for example, as a selfless pilot, sank the first Jap ship of this war, and in doing so lost his life. When Edwin O'Hare shot down the first Jap plane. When Dick Fleming made himself the first human torpedo. When Daniel Callahan became the first admiral to go down fighting. When Mike Moran became the first naval officer to sink six Jap ships in a single combat. When Commander John Che became the first fighting man whose last letter to his son became a famous American testament on patriotism. When the five Sullivans became the first American family of boys to be snuffed out in this war. These men had no opinion about America's cause. They did not believe that the righteousness of the stars and stripes depended upon our subjective outlook. They believed in an absolute distinction between right and wrong, between our cause and the cause of our enemies. In fact, so much so did they believe it 
that they were willing to make their own lives secondary to our cause. And while these and millions of other boys in our armed forces believe in that distinction, an absolute distinction between right and wrong, we have these intelligentsia at home in our classrooms saying to our young, there's no distinction between right and wrong. It all depends upon your point of view. Everything is relative. Friends, this is nonsense. It does not depend upon our point of view. Our cause is right. It is right before God. It is right under God. And in God's name, we will defend it. God love you. O Lord Jesus Christ, who in thy mercy hearest the prayers of sinners, pour forth we beseech thee all grace and blessing upon our country and its citizens. We pray in particular for the President, for our Congress, for all our soldiers, for all who defend us in ships, whether on the seas or in the skies. For all who are suffering the hardships of war. We pray for all who are in peril or in danger. Bring us all after the troubles of this life into the haven of peace and reunite us all together forever. Oh, dear Lord, in thy glorious heavenly kingdom. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed this reflection from Archbishop Sheen on the barnacles on the ship of democracy. And uh, nice to have Fulton Sheen uh, lead us in prayer as we continue to pray uh, for our country and, of course, our our members of parliament and Congress. And uh, I tell you, (laughs) we, we, we have our hands full these days. Uh, with our politicians who uh, run our countries. I'm up here in Canada and, of course, uh, my good friends in America and all over the world, Australia. It doesn't matter where you are. We need to pray for our political leaders, that's for sure. All right, uh, I'd invite you to come again next week and enjoy uh, the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Sheen. And, of course, uh, bring a friend along with you. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, the website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com. It's available, again, uh, tons of free audio and video recordings. And, of course, there's a great book selection there, too. Uh, Again, I want to thank everyone who has purchased books over 
uh, the many years that I've been doing this, and uh, gives me a real um, good feeling to know that uh, Fulton Sheen is being enjoyed by uh, many generations. Um, I like to say that he's affected three generations in my own household. Uh, my father, of course, myself, and my children have all enjoyed Fulton Sheen, and I pray that many generations uh, in your own families will also enjoy him too. Uh, so continue to pray for me, and I will continue to pray for you. And uh, until next time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.